Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading nuclear deterrence experts for a lively discussion on current topics. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the host and the guests are their own. All right, and welcome into our latest episode of NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Lowther, as always. And today we have with us a friend of mine and somebody who has been in the nuclear world for decades, many years, of course. He is Bob Peters, who has been at DITRA. He's been at NDU. He's been at OSD Policy. He has been around the block. And he knows this subject really well. And today, we are going to talk about red zone warfare, something Bob has written about. And, uh, you know, as I read the article that you wrote, and welcome to the show, by the way. Thanks, Adam. It's great to be here. So as I read your article, it was in Wild Blue Yonder Air University's publication to get contemporary issues out pretty quickly, which is, is nice to have that opportunity. You make the case that we we often, you know, during the, you know, during the aughts and during the period of the global war on terrorism, we were focused on gray zone warfare and we were worried about Russian little green men. And now you say that we're in a period of red zone warfare, which is sort of at the opposite end of, of, of gray zone warfare. Could you tell us what is red zone warfare? Yeah. Uh, thanks. So, um, when I think about the red zone, I think of it as a different way to conceptualize how conflict could evolve. And so, you know, about 10 years ago, you saw a lot of writing about the gray zone, as you pointed out, and it was meant to get to this kind of subconventional threshold of conflict in which you don't have state on state conflict, but you may have proxies. Um, and so it was this way to differentiate between it's, it's not peace but it's not, you know, industrialized great power war. And that was, an, right. that was an interesting, useful construct. But I think that there is a place that we are missing when we think about when we think about warfare. And so if you go above the gray zone and go into conventional conflict, oftentimes, particularly when you talk to military officers or professional practitioners, there's conventional war, right, which is everything mm-hmm. that includes you know, all kinds of integrated fires from multiple platforms and infantry and ships and tanks and all that fun stuff. Um, And then there's nuclear war. And they kind of talk about that, right? They talk about conventional war, nuclear war. Um, And and once you start to peel that onion back from from nuclear war, what you come upon is when they say nuclear war, they really mean kind of World War III with ICBMs going over the poles. Occasionally, you might get some more nuance in there and they say, well, you know, it's possible that somebody could use a single nuclear weapon. And, and, and oftentimes what you hear is, you know, from a joint warfighter, well, if that happens, that's a stratcom problem. Um, and um, I, I spent a couple of years kind of scratching my head at that, um, particularly looking at it through the lens of, of what the Department of Defense has been looking at since about 2018, 2019 on conventional nuclear integration. 
or CNI. And CNI was, and it is, how do you think about integrating conventional nuclear forces uh, as part of an integrated campaign? Now, a lot of that analysis really gets down to the nuts and bolts of, of how do you integrate air platforms when they're doing sorties or doing a specific mission. Mm -hmm. But it's not thinking more broadly about the, the strategic issues, the policy issues, the con-ops, what kind of capabilities you need. It really is like nuts and bolts of like, you know, sure. what are the AWACs going to do and, and how are you going to do seed and deed, the suppression of enemy air defenses, things like that. Um, when I think about the red zone, I think about a place of conflict that we used to call limited nuclear war. Right. Back during the, back during the Cold War. And there was this idea that you could have a limited nuclear war that doesn't result in Armageddon, that um, is largely confined to a theater of operations. It's, it's not striking each other's homelands. Um, and there could be a finite number of nuclear weapons going off. It was always kind of theoretical. Um, it was always kind of thought of as something that could have happened, that could unfold. Um, and then we kind of stopped thinking about it, circa 1991, 1992, right? And I think what you saw was that the arsenals in the United States and, and Russia kind of reflected that. They kind of retooled their arsenal to have a small number of high-yield weapons, very different from, from, from what our arsenals were during the Cold War. That's not the case now when you look at what the Russian arsenal is by looking at open sources. They have this myriad diversity of, of capabilities on a number of different types of weapon systems with lots of different types of ranges and variable yields, including low yields. Um, and we, we've also seen them do this, this, this weird stuff with chemical weapons and biological weapons, right? Both of which we got rid of decades ago. And, um, and, and then when you look over at China, particularly with, you know, kind of the breathtaking expansion of their nuclear arsenal that's come about and come out of the open over the last 18 months or so, as well as some long-held suspicions about their chem and bio programs as well. It struck me, um, it's similar to limited nuclear war from the Cold War, but it's fundamentally different. And it's different because they could be looking to incorporate chemical and biological weapons um, which is bad, but I really, in the article, focus on the relatively low-yield theater-range nuclear weapons that, for certain, Russia has been investing in. Um, and it's increasingly looking like China may be going in that direction. And so when I started thinking about that, it's, well, why would they be building these capabilities? It's not really for purposes of deterring World War III or Armageddon. It really is for warfighting purposes. And if they have those capabilities, theater, low-yield nuclear capabilities, and we kind of don't anymore because we kind of mm -hmm. divested ourselves of these capabilities, um, what does that mean? And that led me to, well, there could be a zone of conflict in between conventional and good old-fashioned you know, nuclear war hitting each other's homelands that could be a way in which the bad guy is thinking about employing limited numbers you know, take take your pick, three dozen, four dozen, fewer than those of loyal weapons within the theater of operations to achieve decisive effect without triggering that kind of World War III that everyone was afraid of during the Cold War. That's, that's kind of what I mean when I say the red zone. Now, as you think about the red zone, uh, some colleagues of mine at, at NSRI 
uh, have an article that'll be coming out in Ether, the Air University Strategic Journal, in which they make the argument that Russia's, you know, uh, tactical or non-strategic nuclear arsenal is largely to counter American air power because they have a very strong fear, not just of land, NATO land forces, but particularly NATO air forces that can, you know, devastate, uh, you know, the Russian military in, in an er, early in a conflict with Russia. And so therefore they see, you know, the, these tactical nuclear weapons and, and sort of a reverse of, of our policy during the Eisenhower administration. Is that sort of how you, particularly for Russia, and Russia really seems to me, and tell me if I'm wrong, well poised to rely much more heavily on non-strategic nuclear weapons given its proximity to both NATO and its proximity to China. It doesn't really need strategic nuclear weapons to target China. It only needs them to target the American homeland. But we're not really in, in that same boat. So I, I think the premise is correct in that, and, and the Russians have been kind of saying this for a while now, and I think we should take them at their word in that, you know, they've built these theater range nuclear systems, many of which have variable yield on, on dual capable platforms, right? If you did a conventional warhead or a nuclear warhead, and, and we may not know until it, until it, it explodes, you know, it goes boom. Um, and I think, you know, they've said pretty clearly that that is a consequence of our overwhelming dominance in the air, as well as our ability to have, you know, exquisite precision on targets. Right. I've been demonstrating this for going on three decades now, of the ability to put um, really precise packages on what used to be, you know, dumb gravity bombs. Um, and now when you look at things like JASM-ER and LRASMs, these, these cruise missiles with pretty good ranges, that um, can you know hit one side of a large office building and you be on the other side of the office building and be okay. And they've said pretty consistently that that scares the bejesus out of them. And so you know um, I think that um, you know from their perspective, they're and, and look I'm not defending the Russian Federation one iota here, but from their perspective, <laughs> they're not wrong in that they have not been able to keep up with us in building these exquisitely precise conventional capabilities. So if they can go to uh, nuclear weapons that are pretty darn low yield, um, that can achieve effect. And if they can do it even better without creating a lot of fallout, you know, by getting the height of burst correct, um, then they kind of do see that as a counter to our dominance of precision guided munitions. Um, and maybe from their perspective is they deter us from employing their, from employing our precision guided munitions on their systems or their capabilities. And I think if you accept that as being correct, in some ways we have to ask ourselves, did we incentivize the Russians to go down this path? Because we're so dominant in the conventional sphere. So, that, so if they know, or if they believe that if we get into a straight on, you know, straight up conventional force on force conflict and given enough time and space, we will defeat them. If that's the case, why would they not escalate to a higher zone of conflict? Like, why sure. would they fight that purely conventional fight? Why would they not go, okay, if we're going to lose this war, you know, we're going to use a two kiloton weapon on a valid military target with minimal downwind range hazards. 
if they can pull sure. that off, you know, um, why would they not do that? And, and if that's the case, I, I do think there is an argument that we did incentivize the Russians to go down this path. Again, without defending Vladimir Putin or the Russians or anything like that. No, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a catch-22 where the United States eliminates its, you know, its tactical nuclear weapons and it reduces its strategic nuclear weapons. And then it opens up this space for the Russians and then, you know, potentially the Chinese to think to themselves, hey, we can't match them conventionally, but we could potentially deter them with, with these non-strategic nuclear weapons. And I, I sort of agree with you. How could they not go there? Right. We've incentivized that through our, and it's a catch-22 for us. And I, I often wonder, you know, I try to talk to my, you know, colleagues in sort of the disarmament community and say, well, how, how do you want to handle this? What, what's your solution for this problem? Yeah, it, it's it's huge. Uh, and so, you know, arms control with the Russians, oh my God, it, there's so many problems to it, right? Like they've never wanted to talk about their tactical nuclear weapons or their non-strategic nuclear weapons ever. Um, we're in a political environment where it, it it's nigh on impossible where you can conceive of any administration, Republican or Democrat, sitting down with, you know, Putin's government in Geneva or Helsinki, take your pick, um, and, and having an arms control treaty, period, like that's that's a tall order. Then to convince the Russians to put non-strategic nuclear weapons on the table, that's a tall order. And then what would we have to give up, to, you know, to, sure. in order for them to, for that to be on the chopping block? You know, would, it, would that be like space systems or like hypersonic cruise missiles or missile defense? Like, it's huge what we have to give up. And then let's say you got to a treaty. Getting that through the Senate for ratification? I, I mean, I, I don't know how we deal with the Russian NSNW problem from an arms control perspective. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not denigrating arms control. But I mean, you know, over the next five years, the Magic 8 Ball says, you know, Outlook uncertain, you know, it, it does not look good from an arms control perspective. And then if you, you know, you throw in, we've mostly talked about the Russians, but if we throw in the Chinese and and they're particularly problematic because there's a lot we don't know. Sp speaking of, you know, their systems, again, some of my colleagues at the National Strategic Research Institute have an, an article coming out in the Yusenka's journal talking about they do a reassessment of plutonium production and the ability of the Chinese to actually make quite a bit more, uh, you know, warhead pits than we've previously anticipated, which if that's the case, their, their nuclear arsenal could grow or already be much larger than we anticipate. Yeah, it's a real problem. And, and, you know, so, so there's, so the, you know, the arms control solution, it ain't there. And, and the Chinese have been consistent in saying we're, we're not interested in engaging arms control talks with you guys. And, and so, um, you know, there, there's a war fighting problem there as well. Right. So I don't believe that deterrence is based upon matching kind and kind, right? Maybe, maybe sure. there are instances in which you do want to match kind for kind. Sure. But maybe there's a lot of instances in which you want to do something that's different or orthogonal to what the bad guy did. Um, I would offer that the Russian dominance, and I don't know what the exact numbers are, but all the open sources say they've got you know significantly more numbers of these weapons than we do. Um, so, so, so their dominance in that space, 
particularly in Europe, um, you know, creates a problem for us and how do we respond, right? So let's say, let's, let's have a notional scenario in which they, they pick a, um, a NATO base, they put a low yield weapon on the base and they, they knock out the base. Um, there's almost no civilian casualties. It's all military personnel. Um, what's our response? Is it, you know, do we, do we accept it? And, and by accept it, I mean, we just keep going conventional only. Do we throw in the towel? Do we say, well, you know, we're not ready to fight this war or do we go big, right? Do we go big with something that's a pretty significant high yield? All those problems aren't great. I mean, yeah. there's no great solutions there because if we just accept it and they don't pay any real consequence because we just keep firing LRASMs and we keep firing JASMERs and, you know, um, all these conventional cruise missiles, the Russians say, well, the Americans actually didn't do anything different. So we paid no cost. So we can just use more of these to take out key points, whether it's like, you know, they hit the ports and berths and cranes and warehouses in Rotterdam and Bremerhaven, or they hit another military target using these weapons. And then what do we do, right? Because the problem's still there. Um, or, you know, uh, if we if we throw in the towel, then I think all the other allies across the globe, Japan, Korea, Australia, you name it, are questioning the efficacy of the American extended deterrent, mm -hmm. right? So the same Absolutely. Do, right? Um, oh, or, or we go big and we drop big, you know, something that's, you know, an order of magnitude or more greater in yield, maybe it's two orders of magnitude greater in yield, to respond to a, to a single-digit kiloton detonation. Like, you know, one, like the president, like that's going to be a tall order to convince the president that that's the proper course of action. But two, um, I'm not sure that's a credible response because, it, because now you're getting so divergent from what the bad guys did to you. And that's and that's even if you've got theater nuclear warfighting capabilities in Europe. Um, you look at the Pacific, and if the Chinese used a relatively low yield theater range system in the Pacific as part of their warfighting, we're in even worse position because we, you know, NATO has you know nuclear capabilities in theater. You know, any nuclear capabilities in the Pacific, we're going to be looking at either CONUS based bombers or ICBMs or SLBMs. And, and none of those are really good responses to a Chinese low-yield theater range weapon that hits a valid military target. Like that's, to me, it's almost a nightmare from a response perspective. Yeah, it seems that the cancellation of Slick'em In, uh, which was really, you know, as I've, I've talked to Air Combat Command and, you know, about the operational readiness rates, of the DCA aircraft and then the packages you've got to fly to help them get to their targets. And those operational readiness rates are, are, are not uh, such that they can operate quickly. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrent Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. 
And so that, you know, the DCA mission is largely a political mission. That is, you know, for operational warfighting, it's probably not your best option, uh, although it could potentially be your only option. Um, but Slick Em In, I thought, was at least, you know, I, I didn't think, I don't know about you, but I didn't think the low-yield SLBM, the Mod the mod 2s, were, were a good idea for Europe in particular, just because of the ability to mistake them for something else. And then, but Slick Em In was potentially uh, a solution to, to solve the gap that you see that you've explained that the challenge we face. Yeah, you know, the 76 the, the 2, the low yield uh, submarine launch ballistic missile, it, look, it's not bad. It's not bad to have. I mean, sure. I, I, I kind of go back to um, former STRATCOM commander um, who said when the NPR was rolling out, you know, Russia is not going to commit suicide by, or China as well from seeing a single D5 coming in. Sure. They're going to ride it out and see what, what what the yield's going to be on that sucker. Um, and so I, I don't worry too much about a single or even, you know, two D5s precipitating an overwhelming, you know, um, uh, counterforce response from China or Russia, you know. Um, but, but, but when you think about the number of 76-2s that we have, it's yeah. not really a warfighting capability, right? Just sheer numbers, which is just, you know. Not that many. Um, you know, and, and I think Slick Man has has a has, you know conceptually, it could address it could address some of these problems that we've discussed, um, but it's certainly not a silver bullet, right? I mean, there's I think there's a lot more that has to be done when we think about a broader force posture, con ops plans, policies, declaratory pol uh, declaratory policy, um, the, the the posture of allies and partners within theater. Um, even if you had Slick Man, and and I yeah. and, you know. I'm just giving the Bob Peters view. I'm not, you know, <laughs> just personal views. Um, even if you had Slick Man, um, I still think you've got a whale of a problem in front of you that you need to work through. So then what is the solution? What is Bob Peters' solution? So, you know, whenever there's a change in the environment, in, in anything, right? If you're talking economics or business or the life sciences, um, and it's a radical change, you have to reevaluate your assumptions to see if those assumptions are still valid, right? Um, you know, because uh, there's all kinds of examples from industry of big bureaucratic entities not revalidating their assumptions, right? Sure. Blockbuster video. Americans will always <laughs> drive 15 minutes, spend half an hour, spend $3.99 to rent a movie that they've got to return the next day, you know, like what, you know, this is the goose that laid the golden egg. The, the technology changed and they didn't revalidate their assumptions that Americans were willing to do that. Yeah. When they, when they essentially had a de facto monopoly on, you know, home video rental, right? We, we all know the story of Blockbuster, right? But big organizations oftentimes are really hesitant to revalidate their primary assumptions. And I think in a lot of ways, the broad defense community thinks about nuclear weapons as something that's unthinkable, something that no one in their right minds would ever think to employ, or they would only employ if they thought the regime was at stake, right? This goes back to, well, you know, Kim Jong-un, you know, 
he's a bad dude, but you know, he's not crazy. So he'd never use nuclear weapons unless, you know, he thought he was going down. Right. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not true. Yeah. Um, you know, China, you know, people still talk about, you know, well, China has no first use policy. Yeah. Okay. Mao Zedong said that 60 years ago. Is that still valid? You know, even though they still say, yes, China has a no first use policy, you know, parentheses, with the exception of pa 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 Yeah. Even with all those exceptions, is that still true? Because I, I think, I you know, I think it's plausible, at least, to say that China could pick a, pick a fight, that um, it's not losing, it's not in danger of having the Americans land on the shores of China, but they're about to be humiliated unless they turn this around. And a good way to turn this around is to throw a really hard punch at, at those Americans or the Taiwanese or the Japanese take your pick. And we may not have that as an assumption in our minds that, that they could do that. We may still think, well, they wouldn't do that. Why would they do that? There's no, there's no incentive to them for them to, to use nuclear weapons. And I think that we have to revalue validate our assumptions on when in particular, Russia and China are willing to employ nuclear weapons. In what circumstances? To achieve what effect? And then once you are able to do that, once you actually go and test those assumptions, if they're not valid, then you need to diagnose, you know, diagnose the problem and then what's your prognosis? And I think it's a mixture of capabilities. And without, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to get crosswise with the 2022 NPR. Maybe you do want to bring back Slick Amend. Maybe you don't. Maybe, maybe you don't. But you have to think about what are those capabilities that will give us a plausible path to victory if the bad guys do escalate to this red zone level of conflict and, and then build your force posture and alliance, you know, alliance capabilities, you know, to go along with that plan. Now, that's what I would do. And I know that there's, you know, I'm sure you're saying, yeah, Bob, and there's a lot more work underneath there that needs to be done. No question. Sure. But, but you've got to go through the analytic effort of, if of what is the prognosis to get us to victory. Yeah. You know, it's a good point because, and I mean, I know, you know this, but I'll just, for the listeners at the end of the cold war, uh, German scholars were able to get into the KGB archives and, and they saw the, the, the Russian war plan and the Russian war plan. We, the United States and our, you know, inside the government, there were four, over 4,000 Sovietologists. Right. And those, we knew that they were going to use conventional forces. They were coming through the full the gap. And then we would, you know, most likely the Americans would use nukes first. But in reality, we found out that their whole war plan was premised on striking the five, you know, largest German cities in West Germany at the outset of any conflict. And we, you know, that was sort of an oh shit moment for, for the United States. We just got it wrong. And my question yeah. is now with Vladimir Putin or with the Chinese, who we understand far less than we understand Vladimir Putin, how might we be terribly wrong about what we assume to be true and the way they think, which I think goes to your point. I, I think you're exactly right, Adam. I mean, even people who like get China or no China, um, you know, I, I think the way the PLA has changed how they do business, how the Ministry of Foreign Affairs speaks with us, right? When they sat down with Tony Blinken in Alaska, you know, how Xi Jinping thinks. 
everything that you knew about China and how they approach strategic issues before 2017 may not be valid anymore. Like it may not be valid, you know? And so maybe we need to think about um, a very different China that's far more assertive, that's far more confident, far more willing to accept risk in order to achieve their objectives. Because, you know, they're playing a different ball game than even 2015. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, I used to, I would go to ASEAN meetings as part of the U.S. delegation. And I, one of the things that struck me, and this was, uh, go back to like 2012, 10 years ago, the Chinese were the only delegation that refused to speak English and would only speak, you know, they would only speak uh, Mandarin. And yeah. so therefore, and then they would, of course, require translators for others. And it was, you know, even then they were becoming assertive in diplomatic forums. And so what we're seeing today, I think this, you know, that we talk about, you know, panda huggers versus panda sluggers. And, you know, I, I think we're sort of seeing that the the aspirational goals we had were, were us mirror imaging the Chinese and they, they're not willing to play along with us. And, and yeah. so we, your red zone conflict you know, this idea that we could find ourselves between strategic nuclear war and conventional war, I think has a lot of validity to it. And it's, it's um, certainly will prove challenging for us because that's exactly where we don't want to be. Right. No, that's exactly right. Because, you know, again, if they go there, we're either going to have to keep eating nukes or, you know, or give up. Um or we're going to escalate in which we're going to bring both sides to the threshold of Armageddon. Those are like, those are the three options. Yeah. And none of those are good options. Um, and, and at the same time, like I, I think that the bad guys, after they use nuclear weapons, they could actually use that as a cudgel against the West to say, this thing is getting out of hand. You, you know, it, do you, are, are we really going to get to the threshold of, of yeah. Armageddon? We've got to come to the peace table even though they're the ones that are employing the nukes, right? Sure. You know, you know that they would be doing this. Absolutely. And, and so, and so we're, we're really kind of in a bad place if they decide to go that way. And I, and I actually debated whether or not to publish the article at all, because I thought, well, God, I don't want to give the game plan to, like, to planners in, in Moscow or Beijing. But at the same time, I thought there's, if I've thought of this, they, there's no yeah. way that those folks in Moscow and Beijing haven't cracked the code. So like we, you know, the United States and our key allies and partners, you know, need to understand what's probably going through their minds. And we need to catch up because I, I fear that we're about five to 10 years behind. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, we are out of time. That was a great conversation. Bob Peters, That's I want to thank you for joining us on this episode of Nuclecast. Uh, hopefully we'll have you back. Uh, perhaps you'll write another article, write something interesting and provocative we can talk about next time that, that'd be great adam and, and thanks for having me this is a lot of fun all right thanks everybody for joining us on this episode of nuclecast and we will see you on the next episode